0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Acts chapter 9 today. We're in a series uh, where we're just going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And um, we're in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles and if you have your... um, Your Bible app or your notes, you can follow along there. As a kid, when you might have read comic books and you go from one page to the next, um, to keep you fully informed, usually in comic books, there's usually a square or a section that's titled, Meanwhile, and they kind of tell you what else is going on, right? Right? So while our hero or our villain is fully engulfed in the center of the story, there will be a little square and it'll just say, meanwhile, so at the same time, while this is happening, there's other stuff happening, right? Acts chapter nine in these verses is kind of the meanwhile for a couple of chapters. What we're reading today is a transitional moment. Now, uh, here in a few weeks, Most of the rest of the book of Acts will deal exclusively with Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. His missionary journeys, his sermons, uh, pretty much follow the life of Paul. But for a few chapters, we focused on. We we will focus today and the next couple of weeks on the region abroad and the impact of the gospel. The Luke is the author of Acts, and he's bringing us back to the subject of Peter's work in preparation for this monumental shift in Peter's life in Acts chapter 10. So they've introduced us to Saul. We, we kind of see Saul uh, on the road to Damascus. Last week we saw Ananias uh, take care of him for a moment. Barnabas comes alongside of Saul and Saul is now gonna be discipled by these other followers of Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, this is what's happening in the rest of the area. Again, something monumental will happen in Acts chapter 10 in Peter's life that will really impact him uh, severely on what it looks like to share the gospel. Oftentimes what is happening right now in our life is simply being used to prepare us for what's next. And that's what's happening in these verses that we'll read. Now, as it's been true to this point, as the church is scatters, there's new characters that are going to be introduced to us, and so today we're introduced to a trio of new people that have not been named before, and as we do see them introduced, we're going to identify four miracles and four lessons. Now, two of these portions of the narrative are going to be really obvious miracles. We'll see two people who are miraculously healed. The other two are a little bit more subtle, but as we put them in context, we'll kind of see what these miracles are and then identify some lessons for us. So let's begin in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. So miracle number one is this. The church had peace and multiplied. The church had peace and multiplied. Now, Acts 9 began with the threatening and murdering of the Lord's disciples. Uh, God was more than able to transform this dire threat into an amazing blessing, but there was persecution that was existing for the churches all throughout the area. Now, in this verse that we just read in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, it mentions the churches in Galilee. Um, Up until this point and after this, we will not hear anything about this church in Galilee, which goes to show you that the gospel is not just being centered in Jerusalem anymore. The disciples are now scattering. Churches are being formed outside of Jerusalem, which is in fulfillment of what Jesus asked of the church in Acts chapter 1. Remember, we come back to this verse over and over and over again because it's the outline for the rest of the book of Acts. He said that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, And then Samaria, and then the other most parts of the world. So they start to scatter because of some of the persecution. As they were being persecuted, the enemy of the church, Satan, and he would bring all of these obstacles, both internal and external obstacles, in order to thwart the growing of the church. But all throughout church history, whenever there's persecution like this, an amazing thing happens. The gospel spreads. The gospel spreads and followers come up from all over the place. And so this church in Galilee reminds us that Acts, as we read and study it, is only a partial history of God's work during this period. Verse 31 says, the church had peace. What we want to understand is it doesn't mean that all of a sudden the persecution disappeared when Saul was blinded on his way to Damascus. If you read through this narrative, it can appear that as soon as Saul is blinded and he is face to face with Jesus and Ananias comes to him and then also Barnabas, it can appear that because Saul is now a follower of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden persecution has disappeared. But Saul was not the only one persecuting the church. In fact, as you read through church history, you'll know that there was persecution coming from all over the place. In AD 31, Caiaphas was replaced as high priest, first by Jonathan and then by Theophilus. In the same year, Caligula succeeded Tiberius as a Roman empire. Caligula was especially bitterly hostile towards Jews, and he was assassinated four years later. Before the years he was in reign, There was tremendous persecution against the church. And so Saul wasn't the only persecutor, and yet in the midst of that persecution, the church had peace, they were built up, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church multiplied. So lesson number one is this, it's a healthy practice to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Each of these are needed in the Christian walk. We need both a uh, fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church of God, I believe, needs an appropriate fear of God. This is not a popular topic to talk about. Um, And most of it is because it's hard for us to uh, both reconcile that God is full of mercy, love, grace... And that we should fear God as well. It's hard to reconcile both of those. But there should be a sense in our lives that the holiness of God matters. That the way we live our life matters. And I think sometimes we will characterize our life into sins where uh, there's big sins and maybe there's uh, little sins. Uh, There's bigger sins that we know we would never commit. Uh, We would never commit murder. We would never uh, cheat on our spouse. We would uh, never do these egregious things. We would never abuse someone. We would never be capable of that type of evil. But when it comes here to just being petty or unkind or selfish, or, uh, or, or whatever the case might be, in our minds we've characterized, well, I'm definitely not a big sinner, but I might do these little sins. And so what the church experienced in Acts was this, this healthy appreciation of the fear of the Lord. You remember back a few chapters and we see uh, when people uh, lied to the Holy Spirit and the judgment of God came down swiftly upon them. Those types of examples where it really does matter if we sin. It really does matter if we, uh, if we, if we succumb to temptation, And when we walk in the appropriate fear of God, we're then comforted by the Holy Spirit as we live it out. At any given moment, a disciple of Jesus may need the fear of the Lord or the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's been described as maybe the guardrails of our faith or maybe the bookends of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That on one end, we walk with the comfort of the Holy Spirit and we're encouraged and we're reminded of the things he's taught us. And we are filled with uh, his presence and reminders of it. And yet on the other end, there is this healthy appreciation for the fear of God because God is holy and we have missed the mark in our life. This is what Jesus promised in John 15 when we talked about the when he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so miracle number 1 is this the church had peace, it multiplied and the lesson for us is this, it is necessary, it's a healthy practice for us to walk in the fear of the Lord, but also in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We read on in verse 32 and it says this. As Peter went here, And there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas. Everyone say Aeneas. Aeneas. If I have to read these words and these names, you do too. Uh, There he found uh, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. Look at what happens, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Miracle number two, Aeneas is healed. Now, I like the phrase in verse 32. It's kind of like Dr. Seuss uh, wrote this verse. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, like He's describing the travel patterns of Peter. This is part of the scattering. Uh, Before, in the early parts of Acts, and even in the Gospels, what you would find is the center of religion would be in Jerusalem, and people would come to Jerusalem, Now what we're seeing is this shift where the apostles, the disciples, they're actually going to these different cities and areas where the church is in order to provide ministry, to provide training, to provide encouragement. And so Paul went through all parts of the country to do ministry. They traveled some 35 miles from Jerusalem to Lydda. Uh, Lydda, if you're looking at a modern-day map, is right outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. So you can kind of picture perhaps where they go. And one might ask, well, how did this church community begin, right? We heard about the church in Galilee. How did this one begin? The most logical explanation, if we were to conjecture perhaps who might founded this church, would would seem to be Philip. Remember Philip a few weeks ago was taken up and he traveled, uh, met the Ethiopian. Uh, Well, the Bible records that he traveled from Azotus to Caesarea through the coastal plain. So most likely these are followers of Jesus Christ that Philip led to the Lord. And Peter found a needy man God wanted to miraculously heal. And Peter found him, as he was ministering to the others, And this is the beauty of serving God outside of your comfort zone. You might have a front row seat to something pretty amazing. Uh, Peter said to him in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Lesson number two, as the church scatters, they fully acknowledge they were chosen instruments used by Jesus Christ. I love the details in this account of Aeneas being healed. First of all, Luke is careful to mention, Peter said this, go back to look at verse 34 again. Peter said this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. There are these details in the narrative that show, much, that show how much Peter has grown since we are first introduced to Peter at the fishing docks. Do you remember that version of Peter? Peter. He's traveled with Jesus now. He's seen uh, Jesus in action. He's put his mouth in, his foot in his mouth several times. But now he's filled with the Spirit. He's recognized that he's a chosen instrument. And what's really interesting is uh, Peter kind of follows the example of Jesus' phrases even in this passage. The biggest difference is that when Jesus healed someone, there was no authority Jesus called upon to heal them. He simply said rise up and walk. Here we see Peter fully acknowledging he's just a chosen instrument. And so he comes to Aeneas and says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. This is, um, this is kind of a reminder of Jesus' words when he healed the man who was paralyzed in Mark chapter 2. This is the story where Jesus is in a home and then all of a sudden the friends come And perhaps there were so many people at the house that they couldn't get their paralyzed friend, their lame man, to Jesus. And so one of them has the idea to go up on the roof of the house, and they open up the roof of the house, and they lower their friend. Can you imagine how much time it took them to get to the roof in the first place? You think about this paralyzed man, they had to carry him up there. No doubt, not knowing how long Jesus would be in the home, an incredible amount of faith, and the way houses were built by then, it was easy for them to remove the top of it, and so they, they remove the top, and while Jesus is, is teaching, while he's in that home, all of a sudden the, the, the ceiling isn't there anymore, the roof's not there anymore, and they lower this friend. In that passage in Mark chapter two, Jesus says these words, rise and make your bed. I wonder if Peter in this moment when he sees Aeneas, uh, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, by the way, is to remind you of things, right? And as you're a follower of Jesus Christ and as you learn scripture and as you read and as you study and as you uh, hear about prayer requests, perhaps uh, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is, is to remind you of things. You ever go on a drive and then all of a sudden someone's name comes in your mind all of a sudden a need comes through your mind or you're talking with a friend, maybe at work or with a family member and all of a sudden a passage of scripture comes and you might not remember the exact phrase and you might remember the address of the verse, but you can say, man, I remember the Bible says something about this. This is the Holy Spirit's job to remind you. I think, I just like to picture these scenes, but I think Peter's there with Aeneas and no doubt in, a, in an instant he remembers Jesus and the ceiling being opened up and the, the, the men being dropped down and uh, they didn't drop him, but the lower down and, um, and Jesus says, rise and make your bed. No doubt in that moment, Peter is remembering that scene with Jesus and he's, as he's remembering, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make up your bed. Verse 35 is interesting. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon Shone saw him and they turned to the Lord. This miraculous healing of Aeneas was so uh, interesting because uh, even in the moment, Peter acknowledged, I'm just an instrument being used by God. Even in this moment, he recognized We come to the third miracle, and it unpacks in verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa, Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Everyone say Dorcas. Dorcas. Before we go any further, Dorcas is a beautiful name in the original language. It means deer or gazelle. It was to be a name of honor. It just happens to be a word that um, isn't as beautiful maybe in the English language. So, for the purpose of today, we're going to call her Tabitha. Uh, She was full of good works and acts of charity. Verse 37, In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Verse 38, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. As you look through these verses There's a phrase that Luke includes, and he says this, Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. She was a beloved member of this Christian community, and Luke notes that she was full of good works and charitable deeds. Um, Some of us are full of good works, and we just never get around to the actual deed part of it. Um, I had a pastor growing up that said, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good right? Some of you will get that on the way home. It's fine. In other words, uh, Tabitha was this person who thought of really beautiful ways to love people and thought of really beautiful ways to be generous, thought of really beautiful ways to uh, go out of her way to love people and actually followed through. There's a book called 4,000 Weeks and they talk about generosity and the author says this, whenever a generous impulse arises in your mind, whether it's to give money, to check on a friend, uh, send an email or a text, act on the impulse right away when it comes to generosity rather than putting it off till later. Because when we fail to act on urges, it's rarely out of mean-spiritedness, It's because we have second thoughts on how to engage in the act. It's not because we have second thoughts about whether the recipient deserves it. But we tell ourselves, well, we'll turn to it when our urgent work is out of the way. Or when we have enough spare time, we'll do it really, really well. Or uh, we ought first to spend a bit longer researching the best way to do this and, and how to fulfill. And before you know it, the thought has entered our mind and has just quickly passed away. So when it comes to generosity, the author encourages us, act on the impulse right away. The only behaviors that count are the ones that we actually get around to making. Uh, Here's Tabitha, and she was not only full of ideas and ways to love people, she actually did them. One translation says it this way, she was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she actually did. And so let's be the kind of people that do that. Uh, Tabitha was full of good works, acts of charity, but Peter wasn't in Joppa when Tabitha died he wasn't far away. Uh, so the Christians uh, sent word to Peter, perhaps asking him to come while Tabitha was still alive or maybe just died. So we pick up the story in verse 39. It says this, Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and the widow stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Apparently she was very uh, gifted at making these garments to encourage others and When she passed, they stood there weeping, showing off the garment she had made. Verse 40, but Peter pulled them aside, pulled them all outside, I should say, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41, and he gave her her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Miracle number three is simple. Tabitha is healed. Now, there is no indication in the book of Acts that it was common or expected that dead Christians would be resuscitated to life again. In fact, the, the miracle, and there's a few others in Acts, is listed just because it is unusual. It is remarkable. It's interesting to note that these two miracles and the length that Luke used to describe each, as you read through Luke's gospel, it's, uh, the way he treats Tabitha healing suggests that the good news of Jesus in all aspects of salvation, including the healing, are intended equally for men and women. Acts 9 is particularly noted that the tale about assisting a female follower is given more time, attention, and depth than the one about Aeneas. And I think it's because Christianity here set itself apart from other parts of faith where women and men were equally valued. It may very well be the expectation was that Peter would merely comfort these widows when he came uh, because of Tabitha's grief. And again, I can't help but think that Peter uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit, reminded of perhaps when he walked with Jesus and Jesus went from town to town. There's an instance in Mark chapter 5 where he heals a young woman. It's a similar setting. She's dead and Jesus puts everyone else out of the room. And in that healing in Mark chapter 5, Jesus says these words, talitha. Kumi. In other words, Talitha, rise. And here, uh, Peter says almost the same language except changing the name, Tabitha, rise. Paul simply tried to do as Jesus did. He was uh, following Jesus's example. Again, isn't this a striking difference to Peter as we knew him in the Gospels? Um, Peter was Always trying to lead Jesus, if you remember right. He always seemed to have just a little bit better idea than Jesus. Remember when uh, the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is on? Uh, Jesus is shown there with two others, and John or Peter is there with two other disciples. And in that moment, Peter is just so overcome with experiencing this amazing vision of what they're able to see. And in that moment, Peter just, Peter just blurts out, man, maybe we should just build tents and let's just stay a while here. And if you look at the text, the Bible says, and God interrupted Peter. Like Peter was always trying to lead Jesus. Um, Matthew tri- 16, um, Jesus is uh, foretelling about going to the cross and it's imminent and it's going to happen soon. And Peter tries to lead Jesus and tries to talk him out of it. It's a good lesson for us. Are we leading Jesus or are we following Jesus? Are we in a position in our life where we can stop trying to lead Jesus? Um, Isn't it time for us to be led by him? I think about um, the illustration I told a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth... Uh, repeating. My buddy up in uh, Monmouth, who pastors there, was talking about a day when he was driving home, and he felt like someone was following him. And so he just kind of kept an eye on him, and it was weird that this car was with him for several turns. And sure enough, a few minutes later, he saw the car again, and it was still following him. He would go to his home and make all the turns to go to his home, and still that car is behind him, I've been to Sean's house and he lives kind of like a dead end of a street. And so the car's still behind him where he's a hundred yards from his house and 50 yards and 10 yards. And when he goes to pull into his uh, home, the car behind him simply goes and pulls into the home across the street. It was his neighbor from across the street. Didn't recognize the car. The car wasn't following him. They just happened to be going in the same direction. And how many of us in our life, we think we're following Jesus, and we think we're following him, and then Jesus asks us to go a certain direction, and instead of doing so, we choose our own path. And we try to lead Jesus to where we're going, because we have a whole lot more information than Jesus does, right? We have a whole lot more of what's going in our mind, and what's in our calendar, and what's in our bank account, and what's in uh, our five-year plan, or our, our plan for what's ahead of us. And if I can be honest with you, that drives me nuts when I realize I've been trying to lead Jesus to where I want to go. Those moments of disappointment in our life are good face-to-face opportunities to simply remind ourselves, am I following Jesus or am I trying to lead him? I love these illustrations or these moments that are captured by Luke of Peter where all of a sudden we get to see Peter at this stage of his life and he's no longer trying to lead or, or or lead Jesus to where he's going he's simply led by the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit's reminding him of what's happened in the past and he simple simply follows Jesus's lead she was dead and she came back to life again remarkable unusual miracles What's troubling, or what could be troubling as we read this account, is Tabitha was not the only follower of Jesus Christ that died during this period. In fact, others died and were not resuscitated, were not resurrected. Uh, the Lord chose to raise Tabitha, but Stephen was martyred just a few chapters ago. Stephen, one of the early followers boldly and courageously preaching to those who would then take his life by stoning him. Man, he preaches this amazing sermon, and yet no doubt people rushed afterwards to see if he was okay, if he was alive still. No doubt those would have been followers of Jesus Christ, and yet Stephen's not resurrected. James, one of the early uh, leaders of the church, died. And yet there was no resurrection. I think what's hard for us is this, that lesson three, there will be moments in life where trusting God's greater wisdom and knowledge will be easier than other times. No doubt Peter was there when Stephen died. They prayed over Stephen. James died, they prayed, and yet no resurrection. And so we must trust God's greater wisdom and knowledge in all things, recognizing that these instances we see in Acts are not just a pattern for how our life will go, but what it'll, our life looks like when we simply surrender and trust. It's, it's um, probably the most um, often... How do I say this? When I meet with families or when I meet with individuals... Um, the hardest question I get asked is why? Why does this have to happen? Why is, why is this okay? Why does this hurt exist? Why does this abuse exist? Why, why and why? And there will be moments in our life where trusting God's greater wisdom, His greater knowledge will be easier than others. And it's in those moments that we simply, simply yield our wisdom to Jesus's. We can't make sense of every single hurt, wound that we go through other than to lay it at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, and to yield our spirit to the Holy Spirit's. Tabitha was raised from the dead. Others were not. When you ask the question why, it's, it's a good question to ask. If you look at Scripture and you look at uh, the very middle of your Bible, Psalms is basically a collection of psalmists praising God through every season of life, through seasons of loss, through seasons of victory, through seasons of um, repentance, through seasons of confession. And yet the psalmist will often ask this question, Why? Does it look like the wicked just get um, blessed for being wicked? Why does it feel like I'm being punished for being a follower of Jesus Christ? Why is this hurt so unimaginable? Why does this exist? How do we make, uh, how do we make sense of this? Um, people will often say, Jesus doesn't give you more than you can handle. Sure he does. Life gives us way more than we can handle sometimes by like noon on a given day, right? I think the lesson there is not to say, well, I I should be able to handle this because God's not going to give me any more than we can handle. I think the lesson really there is to say, well, this is why I need God. This is why I need the Holy Spirit's direction and comfort and guidance and wisdom is because there's no way I could handle this on my own. And there will be times when following Jesus and And understanding or trusting God's greater wisdom and knowledge will be easier than others. The Bible says they called the saints and windows in verse 41, and he presented her alive. And then uh, we come to this just throwaway verse it feels like in verse 43. And he, being Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Miracle number four is this. Peter stayed with Simon, a tanner. Now, here's the thing. We've got to get some cultural context to understand why is this verse so significant? Why is it important that Luke included this? He could have just said, Simon stayed with a dude named Simon. I'm sorry, Peter stayed with a dude named Simon. He didn't have to include this little detail, but what's coming in chapter 10 is this monumental shift in Peter's perspective on the gospel and who it's for. So let's just unpack this phrase for just a moment. This sentence would be shocking to any Jewish person hearing this. Are you kidding me? I thought Peter was a good Jewish boy. Didn't he keep kosher? Now, according to their understanding of the law, it was strictly forbidden to associate with anyone who worked with dead animals. You couldn't have someone as a friend who worked with dead animals. You couldn't couldn't be in relationship. You would never enter their home, let alone spend the night. Do we know what a tanner does? So a tanner will take the, the, the hides off of animals and prepare them and cure them to prepare them for leather. Now leather was very important. It was used in everyday life for Jewish people but the occupation itself was despicable. Um, Their home would have no doubt um, stunk. I don't know how else to say that. According to the laws of the time, a tanner had to live at least 75 feet outside of the village because of his constant ritual uncleanness. The trade of a tanner was held in such supreme contempt That if you were a girl and you were betrothed to a tanner and they kept that part of their life private, they didn't tell you what they did for a living, and you were engaged or betrothed to a tanner without consent, the betrothal was void once you found out he was a tanner. You could divorce a tanner and it would not go against Jewish law. This was a little detail that Luke gives us with very big implications. Lesson four is this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to prioritize people and relationships over traditions and customs. And because of this, we see Peter becoming less and less concerned with traditions and ceremonial customs than before. The work of God in Peter's heart lays the groundwork for what happens in chapter 10, and I encourage you to read it this week. This is the passage of Scripture where Peter gets a vision in the middle of the night, and he sees food that's unclean, and he's encouraged to eat it. And he goes through this vision three times, and then all of a sudden Cornelius comes out of nowhere, surprised the vision was not about food. It's about relationships. And what would happen next is Peter's perspective of the gospel would be shattered to realize that the gospel truly was for everyone. It's pretty awesome. He begins to discern what is a tradition of man and what is a command from God. Now, here's the thing. When we read words like traditions and customs, we can get uh, really protective. We can get really defensive. Um. Because those are important to us, as they should be. And by no means are we saying that we will excuse sin. But what it does mean is that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will begin to discern what is a tradition of man and what's a command from God. Let me give you an example, which is dangerous, because it might. Well, we'll just do it. It's just us, right? Here's a command from God. There are sexual ethics God has given us, right? What we wear to church on a Sunday morning, can we agree that's customs and traditions, Right? The one is a direct command from God. The other has been influenced by uh, just the passage of time, by what fashion dictates. Um, it took me a long time as your pastor for me to wear jeans to church. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's very hard for me. Um, It was, uh, did someone amen that? Oh, brother. I'm not wearing skinny jeans, all right? It's just jeans. It was a really hard time for me uh, the first time I came to church as your pastor without a tie-on. It was very difficult for me. As a personal custom and tradition I grew up with. Because in my home, Sundays were a big deal. And the customs and traditions that my family grew up with it was, uh, we all got ready. It was the only time during the week we had breakfast together. Um, my mom um, would wear her uh, her prettiest saris. She'd pick them out days in advance. She'd spend time ironing them. We would iron our clothes in preparation, and we I would wear a shirt and a tie every Sunday. And it was hard for me to give that up, right? Um, but that, that's a custom or a tradition of man. What ends up happening with the gospel, sometimes with our churches, is we will raise something that is a custom or tradition so high in our mind that now not only do we hold ourselves to the standard, what ends up happening? We start holding other people to the standard, And all of a sudden, well, so-and-so isn't wearing this or so-and-so. Did you see what so-and-so? And you might not say it out loud, but it'll be in your head. And all of a sudden, we have divided ourselves, not because of what God has commanded, but because of something that is a custom or a tradition. Now, here's the danger that happens when we allow that to happen in our hearts. What happens in our hearts is there's now a hierarchy in the gospel. There's a hierarchy in the kingdom of God that so-and-so is saved and part of our church, but man, they're not quite here yet. Or they're not quite here yet. And in our own minds, we fail to recognize that we're all short of the glory of God. So when it comes to the direct commands of God, by all means, we have to hold the line, right? But when it comes to customs and traditions, what would it look like in our hearts to prioritize people and relationships? Now, here's the thing. Peter stayed with a Simon, a Tanner. (laughs) I'm telling you, the connect cards he would have got on that Sunday, (laughs) they would have been ridiculous. The elders would have called him in. And said, what did you do this weekend? Where did you stay? You stayed with him. We're going to ask for your resignation. We're going to tell the church that you want to spend more time with your family. Because we won't tolerate this. Because they're elevating customs and traditions. Now I'm telling you, what happens in Acts chapter 10 will blow your mind, considering what ledge Peter went out here. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He needs a place to stay. I'd love to see this conversation with him and Simon. And we don't know what happened. We don't know if he could smell the occupation on Simon <laughs> when Simon invited him. Or we don't know that they just started walking to his home and they walked to the city they walk to all the homes, and Simon says, I'm just, I'm at the end. I'm at right at the edge of town. And they get through town, and they, people are giving them looks as Peter's walking with the tanner. And he gets to the edge of town, and he goes, So when I meant the edge of town, I meant like the edge of town. And all of a sudden, Peter starts walking 20, 30, 50, 75 feet outside of the town, outside of where people are staying. And in that moment, he has a decision to make. Am I going to elevate my custom and tradition to the point where now this, 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 this man has no chance to understand what the gospel is because of this hierarchy I've created in my life? Or am I going to prioritize people and relationships? It's a beautiful, beautiful line here. Peter stayed with Simon a tanner. Next week, I encourage you, this week I should say, read through Acts chapter 10. Read through Cornelius and how the Holy Spirit leads Cornelius and how what happens here. Peter began to recognize that the gospel is all about people and relationship. And here's a beautiful thing about Peter. Has Peter been filled with the Holy Spirit? Help me out. Has he been filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, When did that happen? What chapter? Two, right? Acts chapter two. He is a follower of Jesus, right? He was there when Jesus died. He was witness to his resurrection. He had a meal with Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, he's filled with the Spirit. And what's happening all the way in Acts chapter 9? He's still growing. He's still growing in his faith, and when we get to Acts chapter 10, a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, there's still room for him to grow. There's still room, and child of God, let me tell you, just because you've been attending for two weeks, or 20 years, or 30 years, or four generations, or five generations worth in this church, it doesn't mean we get to a point where we stop growing, we got to keep growing. we got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to grow. Because what happens when we grow is this. Relationships are changed. And all of a sudden, people see the moving of the Holy Spirit in us. And we get to see the kingdom expand. May that be true of our church. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.